everyone listening. This is the Ontolog Forum. It is February 14th, 2008. The title of this session is Ontology Applications in Emergency Response Take 2. Resolved Effective Emergency Response Requires 1. Ontology as an Organizing Principle. 2. Ontology Applications in Practice. First, we'd like to thank the Ontolog Forum community for giving us this opportunity to bring forward a topic area where the benefits of ontology are beginning to be recognized as required. I selected this image and those on the next slide because the events shown in these images were featured news items the day I started putting the overall framework for our slides together. This image is of the sugar refinery fire in Savannah, Georgia. The key points in our demonstration address the issues in the bolded items on this slide. Next slide, please. Oh. Okay, thank you. Um, on slide two, to take this a step further, consider these images and the questions, what do these images have in common beyond their dateline? First, they are images. And images, along with audio files and video files, are unstructured data. And this kind of information is very difficult to use in practice, even if it can be extremely important in many instances. However, beyond the issues of naming conventions, file formats, and XML tagging standards, we also see here a variety of stages in the life cycle of emergency incidents. We have flooding, a tornado on the ground, and the aftermath of a recent tornado. Moving on to slide three. These images also represent different kinds of weather-related incidents over a fairly large regional area. This event, this means that different jurisdictions may have different naming systems for such things as event types themselves. So among other issues for which ontologies or taxonomies are needed, we need to have ontologies of taxonomies for event types, incident life cycles, and unstructured data so that we can reference which taxonomies a given ref jurisdiction uses. These items are just a very small slice of this need. Next slide. Uh, and what I'm going to do here is I'm going to let you um, all uh, read slide four and slide five. The timeline is really just to show you how long it has taken. It looks smooth, but unfortunately, the actual practice, it was not nearly as, as smooth as this. There are a number of things that I wanted to call out in the introduction here, but in order to give Lisa enough time to make her next meeting, she just got promoted to her um, her company's CTO. I'm going to uh, gloss over slide five and slide six. And we'll take up the slide seven. Uh, we want to recap development since our first exploration of this area. We find information sharing is now well recognized as a necessity. At the national level, the National Incident Management System, NIMS, is still on a slow timeline for development and deployment. But the National Information Exchange Model, NIM, is now at version 2.0 and is being fairly well supported. Meanwhile, the aversion of communities at all levels to focus on fail points in our emergency response systems remains unchanged. As the damage from the recent spate of unseasonal tornadoes gives evidence, we still do not have adequate coverage by sirens, and our populace has not yet equipped itself with the weather radios to the extent that is needed. Interoperability remains a challenge, but the recent adoption of the Common Alerting Protocol, CAP, stands out as a welcome exception. Next slide. Uh, I'll let you read this one as well. Uh, these are some, uh, you know, uh, updates of what we were talking about in the first section, in the first session a year ago. 
moving on to nine. Emergency response management systems, your local offices of emergency services, are not budget priorities. So advancing the cause of standards adoption remains difficult. Emergency response systems management, at least at the national level of NEMS and NEEM, could prove to be a major step forward in this regard. We still have to see what shape the national disaster medical system will take. Uh, next slide. I'm going to let you mostly read through this. Things are neither as bad as they might be nor as advanced as we would like, but the fact remains that the emergency response community needs to apply the methodology and principles of ontology, and it needs ontology applications tailored to the specific needs of emergency response decision support. Next slide. Uh, let should be this one as well. The slide suggests one possible list of information resources from the domain of emergency response management, which could benefit from the application of ontological principles in the development and maintenance of explicit reusable data resources. Next slide. I'll let you read this one as well. This is very important because we're going to be touching on EDXL, uh, but since we're going into it in detail later, I'll let that slide for the moment. Rex, uh, you, could you also cite the slide number when you say next because that would help sync up the ACE. Okay. Thank you, Peter. Uh, this is slide 12. Next slide will be slide 13. Uh, this introduces Alyssa Jones. Alyssa is uh, now the Chief Technical Officer of Warning Systems Incorporated and Chair of the OASIS Emergency Management Technical Committee, the EMTC. She will give you an overview of the processes involved in the work shown in earlier timeline, in the earlier timeline, and where we're headed for the future. The floor is yours, Alyssa. Hi, yes, hello everybody. It's glad, I'm very glad to be here to talk about these topics. I'm sorry, I'm, um, I only have such a brief time. Um, Oasis was chosen, as most of you know, because of the... Uh, I'm having process. a big problem hearing you, Lisa. Okay. Um, I've got my volume turned up. Let me see if there's a another volume I can adjust here. Okay. Is, does that sound any better? Yes. Okay, I'll try to speak up, and Peter, you may can adjust it on your end, but I will try to speak up, and and I will be only about uh, ten minutes here in my in my talk. As most of you know, Oasis is an organization where our standards are free and open, free because there's no charge to use the standards, open because of the open process we have. We spend a lot of time working on the details of that process to make sure that indeed. We do have an open process where uh, non-OASIS members can weigh in on the, the matter that we're working with. CAP, of course, was our first um, success, and it's uh, gained success and grown to um, not only the international standard it started out to be, but also being recognized by the International Telecom Union, which has it as its own recommendation now with the errata uh, of CAP 1.1. It's, uh, the uptake has been tremendous. We do have four subcommittees in the Emergency Management Technical Committee area. Uh, adoption is one. Rex mentioned how important adoption is, and it is very critical, and we have a subcommittee dedicated to that. We have another Lisa, could you tell us what slide you're on now? Yes, I'm on slide 13, and I'm going to have to apologize about slide 14 because that, that is just a, a summary slide, but I will just speak to slide 13 at this moment. After CAP then, which of course is transport agnostic, the family of standards, which are the EDXL, 
family of standards um, became envisioned, and that is really the one where the process is that I'm going to discuss uh, in a couple of slides. So the family of standards, EDXL, of course, is not a language of its own, but it's an umbrella, if you will, of, of standards that were to and are being developed um, under the technical committee with guidance from DHS, the Disaster Management Program, working through the EIC through to OASIS. Now, I'm, although this is not on the slide, I want to make note of this, and I'm glad this is being recorded, and I apologize I don't have slides to match what I'm going to say here. This process, and I do have a fairly uh, busy slide I'll show in a moment, but we, we do start with practitioner-driven requirements through a process with the EIC, the Emergency Interoperability Consortium, through to OASIS, so that by the time we get um, a notion to OASIS, we have some idea that it's going to be a very well-defined and, and uh, something of use to the response community. So in, in that, the EDXL family of standards, we had to start with the distribution element because we needed to very uh, succinctly describe the routing assertions for the payloads that would be sent using the distribution element. Um, after the distribution element, then, of course, we've worked very hard on hospital availability and resource messaging standards or uh, drafts that are now in uh, one form or another of public review, hopefully very soon to be in the standards uh, voting process in OASIS. All of the details about the OASIS process can be found at oasis-open.org, and you can review the process there. Now, if I could just briefly go to slide 14. This uh, Lisa? Yes. If you didn't get the uh, the slide set, I took the um, the approved slide and put that in after the summary in place of the two vintage slides. Okay, very good. The um, Let's just go on then to what I call the really busy slide. On my deck, it's slide 15. Yes, that's correct. Okay. This one might be very a little bit difficult to read, but if you'll look on the box on the left, and you might make it larger to see, that is part of the practitioner-driven process. Now, this is an approved slide from the Office of Interoperability Services of the S&T group of DHS. Now, the software, the uh, practitioner steering group came up with the notion that we've got to certainly get the inputs from the uh, practitioners before we even have any type of a recommendation for a standard that needs to be developed. EDXLDE followed this process. It became much more of a, a well-defined governance structure and process um, in the past year. The, uh, the next work, of course, resource messaging and hospital availability went through this process, and we had uh, high hopes that the situation awareness um, work would also follow through, which was started but has not been complete. If you'll look at the second box there then, that's an, that is a, um, a point in the process then that the, stand, the um, practitioner steering group has handed off some um, statement of requirements then that are massaged then and worked through and analyzed and identified to make sure that everything has been uh, encapsulated in this definition of these requirements. And it is much more than just a statement of requirements at that point. Very often it's a, a well-defined draft of the what will eventually become the standard. So there's a, a good draft there that's handed off then to the Emergency Interoperability Consortium. And I'm just going to take a break right now and 
define the Emergency Interoperability Consortium. It's a, a group of vendor organizations that have the opportunity to look at this draft early on, and anyone can be a member of the EIC. You can go to www.eic.org for more information. Now, what this group of vendors does is they take this draft, and, and they do a very important step that I think must be recognized. If we are to develop a standard that looks like this, would product and service providers develop products and services around that standard? I think that's a very key point because if the product and service providers are not going to write to it, it's not going to be out there in a, in a useful way. So it's a very important process that the EIC has the opportunity to take a preview look and oftentimes in the past, We've actually done demonstrations where we're using draft copies of the standard to make sure that, indeed, these drafts will play together and achieve the data interoperability that we desire. So the EIC has been in place and now recognized by DHS for the past three years. There's actually a memorandum of uh, understanding between the EIC and DHS that was signed at that time by Steve Cooper and Barry West at the levels they were at within DHS, a very high level. At this point, and with the changes that have gone on with the disaster management program, in those days it was at FEMA. It was moved, of course, over to S&T, and now part of it has moved back to FEMA. So there's some uncertainty as to um, who will be working under this MOA with the EIC, but it is still important to DHS for this to happen. And um, as the chair of the EMTC, I also report to the EIC on the on the work that we do within OASIS. So going back to the diagram now, if you look at the EIC then, and, and that's properly vetted, and then the work gets submitted after the EIC has approved it to OASIS. Now, what happens when it comes into the Emergency Management Technical Committee is we must first decide if that's indeed a work that fits within our charter, and we accept that as a work product if we choose to. At, from that point, it's, it's very nice that we don't, we're not given specific direction by anyone in DHS or any other program so that the, the experts that are in the TC can really work with that draft and those initial set of requirements to come out with, um, in many cases, a more robust or more uh, international uh, draft, if you will. So uh, we have to also look at the other considerations. Certainly these requirements are coming from uh, U.S. DHS. We have to make sure that this is something that uh, will fit all of our international partners and members as well. As we saw with the distribution element, uh, the Australians were actually one of the very first groups to pick up and use it in a big way. They started using it before they even started using CAP. So, um, and I think that's a, a tribute to the good work that the technical committee did to really um, isolate those things that are international in nature to those things that are specific to the U.S. so that we did we had indeed an, an international standard when it came out. So that uh, Oasis, of course, has its public comment periods that we go through, and we have and we're required by our process to address every comment. And um, we go through that, and then, of course, it comes to the point where the OASIS members also have to ratify it before it becomes a standard. 
and uh, is available for customers' use. So that is um, an overview of the process. I didn't get down into the details of how NEEM works with this and how IEPDs are formed. I just didn't want to get down into that level at, on this call. But I wanted to make certain that you had an idea that there was a good governance process uh, established. I look very much forward to the EIC meeting we will have next Wednesday in Washington where we will have members of the S&T uh, disaster Management Program headed up by Dennis uh, Gusty, as well as uh, we're hopeful Donna Roy from NEEM will be there, as well as our good friends at DNDO that have been working with the EIC for some time, and um, the, the FEMA group um, where the Disaster Management Program and OPEN have gone, headed up by Sarah Hyder, is also invited to attend, and there will be a presentation by FEMA's IPAWS program at that meeting next Wednesday. Uh, I think it's very key that those players will all be sitting at the table together because the, uh, the need, of course, is to have those players on the government side recognize the importance of data interoperability and their presence at that meeting, so states, in my opinion, and hopefully we will have a roadmap for how we're going to go forward, given that uh, there has been a process defined, and uh, that's uh, we're all going to have to wait and see where the money falls. But I think it's definitely something that uh, there's an interest in and uh, will be going forward, and we look forward to see how, how that will happen. And that's about all the time I have right now. I will be joining the call again after I go and do this other call that I have to do, so I could uh, take questions at that time. Thank you very much, Alyssa. Thank you. Uh, do we have David Weber yet? You need to hit star three, David, if you're there, to unmute your phone. Well, while we are at this, uh, Rex, I believe your Skype line is introducing some noise, so when other panelists are speaking, I will try to mute your line. But, but if you have to say something, do a, a, do a one one. I'll unmute you. Okay, this is David Weber. The unmute appears to have worked, hopefully. Okay, yeah, we can hear you now, David. Yeah. Uh, just Rex, go ahead. Okay. Uh, our next speaker is David Weber of Integrity One Partners and chair of the OASIS Content Assembly Mechanism, CAM GC. He will give you an overview of integration technologies that can be used for the EDXL family of specifications and other XML-based IT specifications, and the floor is yours, David. Thank you, Rex. Um, yeah, so uh, following on from what Alyssa was just uh, talking about, um, essentially you're looking at the whole uh, NEEM uh, standards process there, and I just happened this week to be um, – in a uh, course here for NEEM implementers with about 50 other folks. And so the big question is, um, you have all that uh, wonderful standardization, but how does it actually translate into the actual implementation environment um, where the, uh, the, the developers are actually putting technology in place uh, and getting it all to work um, smoothly? So, uh, as Rex mentioned, we, what we're seeing is we have uh, the base XML schema technology that is the foundation for what NEEM has, has done. Uh, then we have other pieces that complement that, and that's, I'm going to show you how that, that uh, uh, puts together. So, first of all, we have the content assembly mechanism, CAM. Um, 
Uh, have we then, moved to the next slide? Yes, you can do. So, David, when you when you change slides, uh, could you prompt us? Otherwise, we uh, uh, the, yes. Okay. Well, um, let's still let's. Let's stay on 16 then for a second. I was just going to just briefly introduce where each one of uh, these uh, technologies comes from. So uh, content assembly mechanism from Oasis. Uh, the core component technical specification is from CFAC, and that actually has been used by Neem to define uh, the core component elements that make up the, the schemas and, and, and uh, so on that's uh, underneath the uh, emergency management definitions that Oasis has built. Then there's the registry technology, EBMX, uh, XML, RR, um, and that is designed to be a collaborative sharing technology. Uh, right now, the, the way you can access the meme is online through web pages, and that obviously does some of the job that's necessary from a human interfacing point of view, but from a machine interfacing, you need tighter integration, and that's really where um, uh, EBXML, RR comes in. And then we have the overall ontology concepts, uh, which are, uh, teach us how to better express the relationships uh, and the uh, metadata uh, around the things that are in the NEEM. And so NEEM has given us a base start on that. Now, how do we do that smarter and better? Okay, next slide, please. Uh, David, if, when you change slides, could you also mention the slide number? That will help us think how okay. this audience. So, we're on slide 17 now, and uh, so what we're seeing here is that uh, the technologies we were just looking at on the previous slide kind of laid out in, in increasing sophistication. So one of the, the things that I'm seeing is that um, as people go to implement um, EDX uh, uh, XL, uh, they're in, it, it, it uh, means that they have to uh, increase the sophistication of, of their uh, uh, implementation uh, technologies. And so this is kind of showing uh, that incremental uh, process. So on the left-hand side, we have the base W3C schema, and that really lays out the what, um, the lexicon of the information content, and describes the structure constructs. Uh, the challenge, though, is how and why do I use particular patterns? And that's where the Oasis CAM templates come in. And so they enable us to, to actually explicitly lay out how to do the particular interchanges rather uh, in more detail uh, for the particular participants. Then we move to the uh, who, which is the alignment of meaning and, and so on. And this is the CCTS and NDR uh, naming and design rules that, that NEEM uses. And so you're going to align in your own organization your use of the information based off, off that uh, common understanding. Then we have the, uh, the where, the shared semantics, things like code lists, um, versioning, role and access security management. Um, all those are things that the registry as a centralized resource across a community of participants can then uh, start to leverage. And, but that, of course, presupposes that there's a maturity in that community to start to take advantage of these things. That's why we're graduating them from left to right. Then we have ontology dis classification discovery, 
one of the things that's going on uh, uh, here uh, this week with the Neem uh, uh, group is just learning how to find things in the dictionary effectively and make sure that it's the right thing for the purpose that they that they need. And so all these kinds of uh, ontology tools make it easier for people to find uh, these artifacts and also, of course, pre-existing templates that people have already built. And then the last piece is once we have all this infrastructure in place, then we can really in a position to start doing machine-based reasoning, uh, alerts, uh, process control workflow, and so on. Okay, next slide 18, please. Okay, so um, what we're looking at here is the CAM Eclipse environment. So uh, this is the JCAM tool that's uh, available as open source, and that's from uh, jcam.org.uk. It's part of SourceForge. Uh, and this has built, been built to uh, as a reference implementation for the Oasis CAM standard. So what you're seeing here is that you take a schema, uh, create an XML instance, which uh, you're seeing in uh, one and two is the available structure and then, and then the structure itself. And then in three, you can actually apply rules to aspects of the structure to control uh, things that you can't do with a schema. So in this case, we can see a rule that says set length, which is restricting a particular field to length uh, between one and 12. And... Uh, then there's the validation process itself, which enables you to run this against a specific example that uh, uh, you're using, and then be able to see the results and see if there's any errors um, that, are, that have occurred and so on. So this is designed as an interactive desktop environment uh, for people to develop uh, sets of templates that, that uh, match uh, the patterns that they required uh, to actually use. And then uh, from this, obviously, the underlying engine can be uh, deployed uh, to your production environment, uh, but we'll see that in a minute. Uh, next slide, please, slide 19. So what this is showing you is um, the example that we've built for EDXL, uh, which takes on the left-hand side the EDXL content for uh, a sample hospital, that has emergency facilities, has uh, ambulance equipment, and so on. And then we're going to apply the template to that, uh, which has the structure layout uh, that we expect so that we can make sure that the hospital is sending us the information in the correct format, correct thing filled in. And um, then we are applying an XSLT transformation to that, which is uh, another piece of XML technology that CAM supports that allows us to take the raw report, report apply the rules, uh, make uh, determinations from that. So we may only print this report in certain circumstances um, and then actually view that as a, as a web, uh, web page as a final artifact. So this is kind of showing you the three steps of the process of developing the content, applying the rules, and then seeing the final uh, report results at, uh, that were the goals and objectives of the EDXL uh, initiative uh, here. Next slide, please, 20. So essentially, once you've developed the templates, you're then in a position to share those across your community, uh, and you can do that in a variety of ways. 
um, you can do it in a standalone format, uh, which is in the bottom right-hand corner, which is basically what we've just been looking at with the Eclipse Editor, and people can run that locally in their own desktop environment. Um, or you can integrate it as a web service where you may expose that to the community and have them uh, send in XML and then see reports uh, and so on. And they can use that also as a test server to make sure that what they have is uh, uh, working properly. And the third option is the traditional B2B, um, which we envision is probably the mainstream case, where you have a messaging system. It's receiving these uh, hospital notification messages continuously. You've integrated in the JCAM engine uh, in, in the back end. And that can then be applying the rules that you have uh, from the templates that you set up to those messages and then producing the rendered reports that you need uh, as the final product. Okay, uh, I believe if we step to the next slide, 21, that should be the wrap-up for me. And uh, again, uh, I think the simplest thing here on the process side is uh, uh, take questions at the end. Um, people can also send me emails. I'm happy to uh, answer those uh, directly as well uh, offline. Thank you, Rex. Back over to you. Thank you. Uh, are you hearing me? Yes, we're he hearing you. Uh, okay, terrific. Uh, I will let my um, uh, slide basically speak for itself. I'm the co-chair of the uh, AMTC subcommittee, the messages and notifications subcommittee, that's responsible for the initial development of some of the EDXL family and the EDXL resource messaging specification in particular. Uh, I will look at a number of issues that have surfaced over the last several years of developing these specifications, and it has led to the point where we are ready to include an ontological representation in the next specification we tackle. And if we can move on to the next slide should be slide 22. Uh, EDXL came about to a large extent due to the fact that our first standard, the Common Alerting Protocol, CAP, dealt only with the content of one type of message, the alert or warning message. It was never intended to handle issues related to any single transport medium. That's what uh, we mean when we say it's transport agnostic. CAP was started sooner and under the auspices of the the Partnership for Public Warning, and it was brought to the OASIS EMTC after considerable development. So we didn't go through the entire process that Alyssa uh, outlined for you. Uh, we haven't got to the point yet where we needed to understand how to do that. The first need, which was identified by the Practitioner Steering Group, established after the signing of the Memorandum of Agreement or Understanding, uh, was the, the distribution element, EDXLDE. This was an entirely different kind of process from CAP, which was brought to the EMTC as a candidate specification. EDXLDE needed to be created from whole cloth, and that is what the, P the PSG, the Practitioner Steering Group, attempted to do, handing off uh, another candidate specification to the EMTC. As it happened, we, as we took on the work, we identified new requirements and encountered problems that the practitioner steering group had not anticipated. And at the same time, the TC needed to divide itself up into subcommittees to study various aspects of tasks before combining them. So we formed our subcommittees for infrastructure, messaging, and notification, geospatial concerns, and uh, more recently, adoption. Uh, 
Uh, if we move on to the next slide, 23, what we discovered was that staying in scope was a challenge. Hiding scope creep is what happens when you're considering requirements for things, like what you name a message type, and you discover that there is no existing standard, and different jurisdictions have different names for a message, such as requests, replies, notices, etc. Uh, there are also different levels at which information is specified, such as the extent to which security is specified at the message ID level versus the level of some specific piece of information within the message, since only one small part may be sensitive or restricted. Also, we worked on EDXLDE during the latter part of the process of finishing the work on CAP and pursuing its approval and adoption. However, not only as CAP our first standard, it was the first standard for emergency response that included an XML representation, and as such, many tried to use it for purposes for which it was not intended. I'm talking about CAP, not EDXLDE. EDXLDE answered some of those uh, problems because CAP wasn't intended to be a distribution support mechanism. So a number of issues arose which were brought up because they were not covered in CAP. CAP was the only specification anyone had to work with. Specifications for IT and emergency management uh, hadn't really existed up to that point. And all parties who wanted and needed standards they could use brought these to us. It was not simple to say that this or that specific kind of information would or would not be covered in EDXLDE. It was quite a learning process. Uh, next slide, slide 24. So even though our timeline only shows a year of development, it was more like a year and a half in which we worked out what was finally put forward in EDXLDE. The important thing is that we learned several lessons. We learned that we needed to establish scope early and clearly. We discovered that it the Unified Modeling Language, UML, diagram with a document object model for EDXLDE was helpful in defining the work. And while we were not ready to make this diagram normative, we included it in the specification for the first time. We developed a method by which we could avoid getting caught up in the efforts of attempting to define a single list for any given type of category, such as types of emergencies, types of senders and recipients, job names, positions, etc. We called this a value list type, which specified a keyword that references a published available list which a jurisdiction uses so that an EDXLDE application could work for any jurisdiction regardless of what lists they use. This slide calls out the ISO 11179 Extended Metadata Registry Specification as one way in which jurisdictions can create such lists in a way that EDXL DE can use for routing, and it is worth noting that other specifications such as EDXML Registry Repository are developing somewhat similar mechanisms that will be usable as well. Next slide, slide 25, please. This slide details a bit about what EDXL have, the Hospital Availability Exchange specification, uh, which was also brought to EMTC as a candidate specification known as half-bed was attempting to do. While working on EDXL have, we continued developing mechanisms by which common information types such as contact information, person names, addresses can be used in standard ways by adopt and we did this by adopting existing specifications such as the OASIS customer information quality, CIQ, their technical committee specifications. And we also used a subset 
of the Geospatial Consortium's Geographical Markup Language, GML, which is named GeoASIS WareType. ETXL HAB represents a intersection of health informatics and emergency management and provides a report-type message that gives a snapshot of a hospital or hospital system's capabilities, and you saw that in David's example. While this is available at any time, it is specifically intended for use in emergency incidents. Next slide, slide 26, please. The EDXL resource message was also initially brought to the TC by the practitioner steering group as a candidate specification. However, by this point in the process of developing specifications, we had learned that setting clear requirements at the start is the best way to approach the work and ask that the candidate specification be reframed as a requirements document for which we supplied a template. This approach includes citing specific use cases for as many requirements as possible so that many of the particular items in the final specification can be traced back to specific use cases to ensure that we stay on target while building the specification. EDXL also uses the same reusable information resources that EDXL have uses, and this is partially the reason why the TC has become ready to accept a more abstract reference information model, EDXL RIM, which is on the uh, on future agenda. Next slide, slide 27, please. EDXLRM contains 16 specific message types as well as the flexibility for implementers to create their own types if needed. Both EDXLHAB and EDXLRM represent message exchange patterns and exhibit the properties of reusability in many of the information resources they use in identical ways. This leads to a number of advantages listed on this slide and specifically lends itself well to use by applications by service providers that can be listed in service-oriented architecture registry repositories in a structured service-oriented architecture. Next slide, slide 28, please. The main lessons we learned in developing EDXLHAB and EDXLRM was to reuse message elements and information units. By using specific pattern, to build a specification in addition to reusable parts, we set the stage for including ontological principles and ontology applications in a systematic way throughout the EDXL family. We think we will be able to capture these features in EDXL RIM in a slightly more abstract specification that works at a level above that of a concrete specification such as EDXL have or EDXL RM but below the level of a complete reference model, such as the OASIS SOA reference model produced by the Reference Model Technical Committee. EDXL RIM is intended to provide guidance for future EDXL specifications and new versions of existing ones. Next slide, slide 30, please. I'm also presenting the next portion of this presentation, uh, and I will, you know, uh, go on to these specific bullet points in the course of that. So next slide, slide 30. At, as the conclusion of the previous segment strongly hints, the work of the EMTC and the SOA Reference Model Technical Committee works together in a service-oriented architecture built on the foundation of the OASIS SOA Reference Model and the reference architecture being developed by the Reference Architecture Subcommittee of the Reference Model Technical Committee. This structure grows from the group of companies, uh, when I'm talking about structure, I'm talking about the uh, Integrated Response Services Consortium, which is in the process of organizing itself. It grows from the group of companies that was originally, yes? 
I seem to be out of sync with you on slides. Are, are we looking at 29 or 30? Uh, 30. 30 is a blue slide that reads yes. uh, I, IRSC. Send right. To me. Okay. Yes. This is the first slide in the SOARR repository group. Uh, and this is about the Integrated Response Services Consortium SOA Registry Repository and the uh, uh, reference architecture that it represents. Uh, the, the, it grows out of a group of companies originally put together for the April 2004 Semantic Web Applications for National Security Conference, SWANS, that was held in Washington, D.C., and then carried forward through the fourth SOA for e-government conference held at Miter Corporation in McLean, Virginia, outside D.C. last October. The presentation was received well enough that we decided to give ourselves a new name and begin working toward a formal organization following this presentation, and at least one and likely two more presentations. That SOA RR, uh, the registry repository, is the framework in which deontologically related services using EMTC standards will make their services available. Next slide, slide 31, please. This means that the first task of the SOA registry repository must provide is service visibility. This slide details the specific aspects of service visibility which the SOARR is intended to provide. Awareness provides search for and access to service descriptions for service providers in the domains of emergency management and health informatics. Our federated registries are designed to cover these domains. Willingness provides information to allow potential service consumers to determine the applicability of a given provider's service. Reachability provides service descriptions in a form that allows consumers and providers to automate the consumption of the service or the communications necessary to coordinate aggregated services. We suggest reviewing the OASIS reference model for SOA, which is available now, and the reference architecture when it becomes available during the public review period. That will be announced by OASIS, and we will be sure to announce it in the Ontolog Forum as well. Next slide, slide 32, please. This diagram illustrates the relationships of the various components that make up the service description as it is currently in the reference architecture. Rather than going into detail, we provide this here for you to review in your own time. The point is that the work we are doing in the SOARR is intended to provide these kinds of information components as well as the major elements of the reference architecture. We are developing the SOARR in stages, of course, adding features carefully to ensure that they work as intended. Next slide, slide 32. This slide makes the point that we are using the OASIS. 32, yes. No, 33, excuse me. This slide makes the point that we are using the OASIS EBXML registry repository specifications as implemented in the open source free EBXML registry repository project provided by the Sun Service Registry. Sun Service Registry actually implements the free EBXML registry repository. Next slide, slide 34. 
Because we are specifically using the EBXML registry repository specifications, which are among those under consideration for inclusion in the Open Ontology Repository Initiative in the Ontolog Forum, we hope to take advantage of this convergence to ensure that our implementation will work with the OOR and be available to be federated with the OOR. It is also our hope to learn from the experience of participating in the OOR initiative to ensure that we can take the practice of including ontology support in our, in our service-oriented architecture registry repository to the next step in step with the OOR initiative. Next slide, please. 35. There are several ways in which ontologies can be included in, the, in our SOARR. Because our SOARR is specifically designed to serve the domains of emergency management and health informatics, ontologies used in these fields can be included as standalone registry in entries. The basic entities we are including in our SOARR are services, service providers, standards, standards development organizations or custodians, and guidance for the use of these standards from the most authoritative sources we can provide. This is in addition to providing transaction histories for those who use the SOARR. Because the EBXML registry repository specifications include classification schemes, it will be possible to include ontologies as classification schemes as well as standalone resources. Next slide, slide 36. This slide shows how and where such a use of ontologies can take place. Here we see public administration as it is currently configured within the SOARR. This gives you an idea of the format of the EBXML registry repository. If you look a couple of entries above public administration, you see other services. You could, for example, load an ontology as an extension to this category. This shows a particular information structure which our SOARR can provide. We are also looking at ways in which ontology tools might be used to good effect within the structure and as tools capable of querying and accessing the database that the registry repository builds and maintains. That would be separate. We think that this is a particularly ripe arena for development. Next slide, slide 37. However, as the preceding slide shows, the Sun Service Registry, based on the FreeBXML Registry Repository, already has a significant and detailed interface. After studying this interface ourselves, we came to the conclusion, especially in the context of potential service providers and consumers in the domains we have targeted, that this built-in interface was just too complex and difficult to master for our users or for the users we anticipate will be uh, attracting. We felt that asking practitioners in the field of emergency management and health informatics to devote a significant amount of time to learning how to use the SOARR was going to be a hurdle that would serve as a disincentive. So we decided to build a web interface application to provide a simpler and easier interface to simplify using the SOARR, and that's what we're working on now. Next slide, slide 38. Here is a sample of our interface that was developed to accept a batch loading of MySQL database information from the Golden Gate Safety Network, a recent addition to the Integrated Response Services Consortium. As you might guess, this example is from the San Francisco Bay Area counties that participate in the Golden Gate Safety Network.
But the takeaway here should be that these resources need to be readily available in all communities. They're currently working on an EDXL resource messaging reference implementation based on the version that will be released by Oasis for public review in the near future. It's in their report right now. We finished it up two weeks ago. It will be included in a future presentation based on the SOARR. IRIS, the I-Integrated Response Services Consortium, is specifically targeting the Urban Area Security Initiative, UASI, and the Super Urban Area Security Initiatives, SUASI, such as San Francisco. Next slide, please. Our next speaker is Michelle Raymond, a principal research scientist at Honeywell ACS Labs, Knowledge Services. She will be examining emergency management needs across knowledge domains for data exchange support. Michelle, are you there? I am here. Can you hear me? I hear you. Excellent. All right, so I believe I'm starting with slide number 40. Very, very briefly, uh, my background, I've been involved in both sides of what I'm talking about here, emergency management and building control systems. My primary employer is Honeywell, and, of course, that brings to mind things like thermostats and HVAC and control systems and I've been very much involved within the company and then also, um, in some sense in my mind, more importantly, not just for that company but for all companies, in the standards work to bring together uh, building information models that can work across industry and also that they can start integrating with other types of services that might uh, provide options and opportunities for new markets to work with facilities. On the emergency management side, I've been, oh, start with, I've had my first aid training since I was 10 and really haven't left it alone since then. I'm now involved with the community emergency response team, uh, which is through the National Citizen Corps program. I'm involved in Minnesota. I am a certified teacher for that. I'm uh, covered under the NIMS program, the National Incident Management um, System, and I have been involved with the Emergency Management Technical Committee. I was the editor of the EDXL, Emergency Data Exchange Language Distribution Element, as one of the editors. So that gives kind of both sides of that picture and why I picked building domain to go into as one of the areas where emergency management overlaps with a domain, and we can pick other ones, and how all of the information-rich environment in that domain can be brought to bear in an emergency. So first, I'd like to just stay on this slide and say, I grabbed that quote there, in an emergency, information must flow smoothly through detection, awareness, response, mitigation, and recovery for all involved parties from the talk I gave last year on the take one of this series. And at that time, those words were being bantered around, and there really wasn't a standard for what the process. There, lots of people had different names. Now FEMA, which is a 
U.S.-based organization, but uh, the, the strategy extends internationally, has put it down that the four main stages are prepare, respond, recover, and mitigate. So we can even see that within a year, oh, we've gotten a little bit closer. For I'm going to take FEMA's definition of some of those and then go into why we need to meet their needs with ontology for emergency response. So for preparedness, their definition, they say preparedness ensures that if disaster occurs, people are ready to get through it safely and respond to it effectively. Preparedness means figuring out what you'll do if essential services break down, developing a plan for contingencies, and practicing the plan. So for me, that means that preparedness requires knowledge. So we need to define essential services in a semantically meaningful way. We need to plan, have planning be a smoother process by employing what we've already done with good ontology work. And we need to do the exercises that they're asking people to do for planning and from those exercises refine our knowledge tools. So there's a lot that these communities can bring to bear. Next response begins as soon as a disaster is detected or threatened. And I'm, on, I'm still on the very first slide here. <laughs> um, so response begins as soon as disaster is detected or threatened. It involves mobilizing and positioning emergency equipment, getting people out of danger, providing needed food, water, shelter, medical services, and bridging damaged services with systems to back to bring them back online. There's local responders, government agencies, private organizations, and sometimes they need to go outside and bring in federal. And once again, this is U.S.-centric. Um, what I take from that is that, and this is something that I've seen with emergency management, a disaster doesn't publish its actions and impact. So we can have an ontology that will describe things that occur in disaster situations, but we'll never be able to put together everything that we need to know. So in an emergency, we never know all the elements that will be involved. We can't have pre-collected and pre-connected with all systems and people. And those are the, the connected and collected is, is really what I'm looking for from, from this community. Things like the details about locations, people in facilities, the resources needed for this situation, information providers, external influences that, that are affecting the situation. All of that data must be collected and connected during the response. So things I think might help, a common data representation, interoperable data exchange, data fusion, data structure repositories, and data registries are all needed. I'll do one more, the, the rebuilding. Rebuilding after a disaster can take months, even years. This is FEMA's quote. Not only services and infrastructure, not only the facilities and operations, but the lives and livelihoods of many thousands of people may be affected. Federal loans and grants can help. Funds are used to rebuild homes, businesses, and public facilities, to clear debris and repair roads and bridges, and to restore water, sewer, and other essential services. 
So emergency response needs here, they include the services that can be provided throughout the whole rebuilding process. But many of those services depend on infrastructure in its many syntactic meanings. So we've got, what, infrastructure for communications, infrastructure for transportation, infrastructure of data exchange, infrastructure of utility systems, et cetera, et cetera. Infrastructure is one of those words that um, I think we often have the most semantic meaning uh, issues with. And it seems like almost every one of them apply when you're talking about rebuilding in an emergency management situation. The number of domains that have different data standards out there, those all must interact, and they're of concern as well. So we won't go into mitigation, but I'm sure that you can imagine how the knowledge space and the tools wax and wane throughout uh, mitigating um, and trying to make things better for future. So let's go to for slide 41, please. This is really what I'm stating as the information needs for uh, emergency management. We need to cleanly cross domains, and we need the data exchange support. So we need to connect that information, but we can't do a lot of uh, manipulation and transformations. We need that information connected now when we're in an emergency. And then it's really services, services, services. We need information services, reasoning services, action services. So this, this may be agent technology. This may be uh, repositories. There's all sorts of possible solutions that come out of the ontology community. The data exchange support, uh, focusing, the sharing policies. How, how do we make sure that the right people get the right information at the right time? How do you distribute that? Make the assignments to who gets what? And really in the emergency space, the goal is to have that common operating picture, which when we start getting into this whole ontology of ontologies and these, the, what's coming up with the ontology summits, um, ontology uh, repositories, that's where I'm really looking for the ability to start building common operating pictures and to be able to get at the aspects of that picture from different scopes and views. Slide 42, we're getting buildings here. There are two standards I'm going to talk briefly about. Um, one a little more briefly than the other. I'll give you a little more on the, the BIM side because it's uh, kind of the, the biggest mover at the moment, although OBIX, I hear, is going to shake some things, things up too. The BIM is a building information model. And that's basically a collection point for information about facilities. So the NBIMS is the U.S. national uh, one. And I'll tell you a little bit about maybe why that's there. But traditional approaches for the information are scattered about a facility in multiple products. And you can't get a clear picture of what's happening in one facility the one you're interested in if you're the emergency responder and it's on fire. So emergency responders, they want to know things like, how can my vehicles approach a facility? Where can I park? Uh, one of the issues we had here, I'm in Minneapolis, and I'm not sure if it, it was somewhere, somewhere in the metro area. 
They had a uh, water pump truck, which uh, is very, very heavy because it's, it's a truck that's basically filled with water. And they pulled up onto the lawn next to the building. Turned out they didn't need all of the water from the truck. They were using some hydrants. And, but the lawn got pretty soggy. They couldn't get the truck out. So those are sorts of information they like to have ahead of time. Other things they need, how to access the building, internal safety aids, where are they, where are the people, are they there, uh, what time of day might they be, can we tell exactly the location, what are dangers to the responders, are there bio or chemical hazards, construction techniques that uh, could, given a certain length of time, cause issues for the firefighters. There are certain types of, of roofing structures that they have regulations and, and kind of guidelines to say, you really don't want to be on that type of roof after it's been heated to a certain temperature because the cables begin to snap. And if you're on a roof when a cable snaps, it's not good. So the list goes on and on. Of the, the personal, the external services they, they need to contact, situational experts, and a lot of these things are, they need for help in analysis and quick decision support. So once again, we come back to um, how can we get them the information they need and bring all that information together quickly. Once the NBIM's vision, as you see it, what I've done was I, I created the bullets above to make the highlights, and then their action, the, the official vision statement is, is in the, the box below. So once, once that vision um, is actually realized, then we can form relationships with the information about the facility and yield the analysis that could not previously be performed because they were all in different systems and different formats. So the more mature the model, the more usable that it's going to be. But at this point, any collected data is better than how data sharing is done today in the facility building industry. And why this is a U.S. national standard that I'm taught, the NBIMS part, uh, is that there are some um, standards that they have to comply with that um, uniformat and master format and several others that are specifically unique to North America because this is uh, being hosted by the National Institute for Building Sciences, NIBS, the Facility Information Council out of that. However, the National BIM standard is part of the global building smart, and I didn't put a pointer to that on, on the links, but I can add that, the Building Smart Information Delivery Manual Initiative, and that is a global effort. So now slide 43, please. Here, um, this is the Building Smart official definition. And the key point, the key takeaway is that it's digital, so a machine can read and analyze it, the information. It includes the entire life cycle from inception onward. So any information that you, for example, the firefighters who need to know about the roof construction that's not something that you normally would think to display for them. How, and that information probably is back in the blueprints or the original design documents. So we need to keep information and make sure it's available throughout the life cycle of the facility. 
It needs to support collaboration and the sharing of information and support the interoperability of the information formats. And it needs to be open standard and free. They, they really want to focus on um, making this available to all aspects of, of industry and services that may be involved with buildings. And that's particularly important for emergency management because uh, local fire companies and those sorts of things, they, they don't have money to sign up to pay big money for uh, standards. They, they get involved and are really eager to help in, in setting standards it was my, is my experience. But the, if we build something that they can't use uh, because it's outside of the local municipality budget, it's not going to cut it. So 44, slide 44, please. This is the interface between various sections of the National BIM standard, and the business process is at the core of the standard. Standardizing relationships will help identify the information that's needed. So what flows through the model can be made available to other parties. Uh, it can be identified within that BIM scope. So formalizing the information helps to identify authoritative sources for information, and it helps to ensure the correct data is collected and need only be entered once into the model. This is a huge savings for this industry, and this is something that I think is across uh, domains and across spaces, that if you have one person who's working on the construction and they put in information and it can then be used by someone who's going to do installation of service objects later uh, and that information is already available in the model, it's there for reuse and modification. It also helps have a process to keep that information up to date. Let's go to slide 45. I've got a, a few, as, as we, we say, uh, cluttered slides here. Just to give you a feel for the, the real space that this is, this is involved with and how it impacts uh, emergency management and the emergency data exchange language distribution element. These slides are directly from NBIMS and they've been used in their copyrighted and uh, attributed to the NBIMS and they are available for reuse. And I do show a link for the BIM slideshow that I pulled these from. This diagram identifies how the information is rolled up from the facility level to the world view, and it's a joint effort by many industries. It's for viewing the geospatial world or the geospatial view or scoping. Now, one of the main things that we need in the emergency data exchange language distribution element, EDXL, DE, I'm going to start saying, in the DE is we need to know the target, the, the space that this information is going to. We may also need to know the uh, information about the 
the actual incident, where it occurred, that may be held in the content of it. So there's several places in the distribution element. The distribution element has its main header part that tells you the who to give this to, who the sender is, that, that, that header type information, routing information. It has another section for the target, and that's the often a geospatial uh, representation is, is put there. There's work done on different uh, types of, of standards that we're using in there. Um, and if you look at the, the actual DE document, you can see which ones are, are supported um, in their current forms. And then finally, it's also important to realize that geospatial information is sometimes the content you want to give to your user community. And so that may be in the content portion of the distribution element. Slide 46, please. Here I'm not going to, to go into all of the detail because um, <laughs> there's a lot of it in this slide. And that's basically what I want you to take away is that there's a lot of, of detail that has been done with the BIMS and the National BIMS uh, projects and the relationships here that are involved. I'll say that the system, those are items that are, are structural systems, mechanical, closure systems, and the like. The space is the room as well as the void, and it adds up to the total footprint of the facility. That may, and by facility, we may be talking at this point just a building or we may be talking the building in its parking lot, or we may be talking a campus. You know, things can can grow, and um, in, and there's relationships within there that need to be accounted for. There are overlays and polygons that that can be put over the space and the systems to show different zones. So, for someone who's doing building management, that might be a heating zone where it may be where the firewalls are and they enclose off a fire protection zone, or it may be organizationally. It may be your financial cost center. So the information on a facility is not simply about bricks and mortar. It's also about how the facility operates, why it exists, who's working in it. All of that information can be included in this model. It's very ambitious. It's also important to note that the floor plan, which is what people think of when they when they think of a building model, that that really is only a report that comes out of the model. It's an important one for emergency management. They like to to be able to see where they're going. Uh, slide 47, please. Here, I want to show that they're already looking at when you have a single object that there are really lots of contexts for that object. And we can think of that, the way I, I think of that as the scope or the view. Um, context also is a very good word for that. Here they have the industry foundation classes, IFC, and directory elements, and they call them molecules. And those are used in various combination to make up compounds. You may want to go pull the, the, the BIM slide set because they do actually have uh, a nice little 
DNA-like structure that's uh, being built up and the life cycle process that spirals around it. And you can see how they interrelate. The directory provides uh, international harmonization. That's what this slide shows, is that we've got those molecular elements from different countries, and they really are referring to the same core concept idea. And there are many companies and multinationals that are using the directory uh, and, and many ways that translation is done at this time. We're looking for more standardized ways. One of them I would love to have them officially put on this slide is the emergency response um, or disaster management or one of those. I'd like to have them put that as a, a context. So let's please go to 48. The other standard, OBICS, this is out of OASIS, which the uh, Emergency Management Technical Committee is a member of. The reason you see on these slide, this particular slide and one of the others, I took these uh, two slides from a talk given at the OASIS Symposium, and it was presented from the Emergency Management Technical Committee, but we were talking about the integration with buildings. So I thought a per perfect opportunity for reuse. So here we have the open building information exchange. And the things that we really want to take advantage of are the way that it can communicate with external services. It has a current way of representing information in a standardized format that they're looking at and they're working with the both the NBIMs and the smart building people to come up with a common standardized format for the information. However, there are reasons to keep uh, this standardized format for some of the internal, and perhaps when it becomes exchanged outside of its system and goes to external services, it would have a different format. These are things that are all up for discussion. Really. The basis of OBIX is, well, there are two things, contracts and operations. Contracts allow you to build up any object in, that, in, in the building model and add to it and add more information about it. And then operations are actions that you can take, uh, actions that can be automated, actions that can require uh, policies to, to tell them who can take that action. And so with both contracts and operations, it gives us the basis for security permissions for situation awareness. The example we used at the OASIS Symposium was uh, tornadoes going through uh, Minneapolis, and I had it passed through a chemical, um, a building that, that is really just a facility that does chemical process processing, not a big chemical plant, um, the more one that's putting it to, to use to be able to do, they, they're doing batch control and they're, they're, they've got some really caustic chemicals, uh, and if those chemicals mix, it's very bad news for the environment, it's, it's bad news for the people who breathe it. Uh, so 
they don't want people to be able to get in and, and just tweak with their their system at any time. But if they're in an actual emergency situation and an alarm state is in existence, that can give them the opportunity to change the permission as long as the authentication is there and allow an emergency responder to interact with the building in ways they normally wouldn't have the ability to do. So let's go to slide 49. And I think we're just going to skip this one. I've already talked about the contracts and the the um, um, other aspects of it. What I, the takeaway here would be is that there at OBIX 1.0, and going up to that next level with the ontology, that's that's something that uh, is is right in this community's area. So let's go right on to the next one, slide 50. I, hmm. Okay, yes, that's where I want to be. Uh, slide 50, didn't match up on my slide set here. Now I'm on. This is the OBIX payload in the distribution element. Now, when I say payload, that's the same thing. It's the, it's, it's the top common term we've started using for the, con, the content of the message. So here I'm using that scenario example of the tornado that's going through Minneapolis, and we learn that there's a tornado touchdown. They put out an alert. Uh, then they put down more information about knowing what the path is, and so they re define that uh, alert, and the distribution element sends it out to the things that are actually in the path of the tornado in the very near future. Tornadoes are, are, are darn hard to track, so you have to, to uh, expand out the space where it might veer. So in this example, we've got the first responders definitely need to get this. A lot of them are already involved where the payload, the content of the message, is in the common alerting protocol, another standard from the Emergency Management Technical Committee. And they're able to use that information uh, to, to exchange further information amongst themselves and to start to learn about the incident and preparing and go out to handle it. Um, in this case, you, you don't send firefighters or, or first responders out to chase a tornado, but they are aware of it at this point. So we've got a chemical plant, a rail yard, and others who are in the path. So three potential content mechanisms within it are other standards, one being OBIX. That OBIX message can be holding BIM formatted information, information that came from the, the building information model. The rail yard may have a proprietary protocol. As long as we've got the wrapper for the distribution element that tells us that we can send it, who to send it to and what type of uh, message to put in the content, then we're fine. And that same distribution element can carry another cap message that's intended for other recipients. And it goes to all the right places because of the uh, different distribution elements, the sender role, the recipient role, uh, the different 
parameters that are contained within there. You can also put in an explicit address where it needs to go. This example shows that they invoke a contract in OBIX to say, we have a National Weather Service alert. And that contract says, oh, okay, we validate you are from the right place. And so we're going to open up our firewall a little bit and allow you to do things that uh, maybe you wouldn't normally be able to do. And this is more not that they're going to actually, the firefighter is going to push a button and have these things happen in the building. It's all preset with policies because a facility manager, especially in a chemical facility, is not going to just have anyone uh, manage that. And so that's why that's built into the OBIX side of that. So from that um, OBIX payload, they say, okay, you meet the right contracts we're going to invoke the tornado take shelter alert. And that alerts all of their employees. And then it makes a request because, once again, different levels of, of um, how they want to handle operations. The, they make a request to do a safety chemical containment operation, which the building manager approves. And so the building management system is all still self-contained and can set the policies, but they can receive messages through the distribution element that are specifically formatted for them. Um, let's wrap this up on slide 51, please. <coughs> what we are going for, so why do we need knowledge solutions in the emergency management space? I talked before that we need to cleanly cross domains and that we need data exchange support. These are some of the things that I kind of thought would uh, be applicable and I've been doing some work on. So we need to know where to get the data and we may look at the service-oriented architecture registries. We may look at um, other forms of uh, repository storage. But the SOARR is a, is a prime candidate. We definitely need domain information structure. So, you know, right off the bat, you think ontology. Reasoning systems. I, once again, want to start with a good ontology. And then I like to base my APIs off of the ontologies themselves so that, that the whole system is consistent. And then in the data exchange side, things we really need, we need the event types so that we can do poly, the policy management within the service-oriented architecture. We, I talked about the, the incident life cycle, the, the, the four steps that FEMA put out, and there's more when you, when you get into it. We need an ontology that really defines that. Um, then the ontology to ontology. Can we do some semantic clustering of the information from the different domains? And data slicing, let's get into the, the metadata so that we can define the scope and the view and be able to get into the different domain information. So with that, we can go to the, the final slide with the references on it. And slide 52. Peter? Mm -hmm. uh, thank you, Michelle. Uh, All right. And I'm um, perfectly 
happy to answer emails. Um, usually the best way to contact me. Great. Our next speaker is Dr. Bob Smith, Professor, Professor Emeritus of California State University, Long Beach. He's also a member of the Open Building Information Exchange Technical Committee. Bob, it's yours. Thank you very much. Can everybody hear me okay? Hear yeah. me fine. Great. I might also point out that uh, I'm working at the local level in the city of Huntington Beach, kind of dreaming um, intently about Michelle's ideas of a full integrated CERT uh, capability. I'm also a member of the Huntington Beach CERT, which uh, has a fairly good GIS capability at this point but a lot of ignorance at the senior level and at the council level of how the implementation would occur and what it actually means in budget terms. So I'm uh, kind of wearing, like most of the other members of this uh, help, uh, several hats. Uh, some are more green. <laughs> some are more uh, red than others. My uh, slide 54 my primary objective is to marshal all of the evidence that we have covered and the specific contexts that you've listened to so far. The SOA, the CAM, the OBIX, particularly discussions about OBIX 2.0, which involves additional items beyond just the building, but the energy, the industry, and essentially a community-level view of all the systems and subsystems, understanding how energy is absolutely needed to pump water. 20% of the energy of the state of California simply goes into pumping water, and the related systems that are involved in the design of large-scale <clears throat> communities. So... Uh, my objective in marshalling this evidence is to build a decision-supported system, which is ontology-based, which you saw earlier that Rex referred to as a decision-supported ontology. And I'm using a couple of semantic tools, uh, SEMTOC and KVM in particular, among other tools, as a decision-support for the analysis of strategic options for I-Risk as it deals with issues of SOA uh, project management and uh, process representation uh, from uh, conceptual modeling, OTF, as Danny has been working with, uh, on through uh, WSDL and other aspects that could result in the output of a spreadsheet that most city council people and vice presidents and presidents of uh, the various industries that are involved in BIM and BIMs, OBICs, uh, need to see, as well as project management plans. So bear with me. Uh, this model has been under development for well over a year, and the con concepts of ontology management uh, team having access to a decision support that's ontology-based 
goes back uh, to the early days of some monologue discussions. So the model is partitioned basically into three layers. Um, you noticed others have used uh, other terms for how you slice up the world, and I'm still looking for uh, an ideal uh, perspective on which to divide up this particular word world that I'm trying to model in iRisk and for the city of Huntington Beach. But basically three layers. The first layer uh, looks at the organization problems of aligning engineering and management functions and what I like to call mega projects. A mega project is uh, similar to a water desalinization plant, uh, $457 million and counting. Or a central node in the California Electrical Distribution System, the AES plant, we're looking at uh, well over that amount. Um, I think a distinction is important to make between uh, small projects, uh, which are under uh, a third of a million, and mega projects over a third of a billion that have significant timelines for not just construction, but as well as the design and the regulatory review, which optimistically takes uh, three to four years for any mega project. And that's the point where cities attempt and state commissions attempt to understand all the environmental impacts that you saw Michelle by dealing with the hierarchy of structures, the environment, natural. So the increasing interoperability of large um, data modeling really has potential dividends and it's important to be aware of as we're designing these uh, regulatory processes. So that's way beyond the scope that I'm concerned with. But it just indicates what's out there and uh, in alignment of values and perspectives. The layer two deals with artifacts that help the aligning, aligning and conflict uh, resolution, conflict surfacing, occurring at level one. There are two roadmaps, baselines, base benchmarks, and we've seen many samples uh, in the prior presentations of various roadmaps, such as the one that Rex presented early on that ends in January uh, 2010. Uh, the water desal plant and the other uh, water reclamation plant as uh, timelines that go well, well beyond that uh, time frame. And the uh, opportunity at Layer 2 with these artifacts of using a legacy of management methods and dealing with large coordination projects that we've seen in the past uh, Gantt charts going back to World War I brought sudden insight into how to coordinate the building of ships and shipyards named after uh, Henry Gantt. Uh, you're all familiar with PERT, um, 
which arose out of the need for uh, coordination of large organizations. And I kind of see a, a parallel or an analogy with the development of OOR that we've been discussing with traditional operations research management techniques as a solution to a lot of the alignment problems and processes in Layer 1. Finally, with Layer 3, the model, uh, the semantic technology model, and SEMTOC and KVM are looking at exactly the issues that we heard from Michelle with the integration of architecture, engineering, construction <coughs> sectors, which are aligning with health information technologies. Uh, we've got certain evidence of success and marshalling uh, additional verification and validation agents and the double uh, OR uh, layer. Moving on rapidly, uh, you can read these at your leisure, but I'm stressing the aligning engineering management uh, relationships as crucial and understanding some of the really basic problems that management, the field of business strategy, uh, has learned over the many mistakes that has been made in attempting to uh, use a top-down approach rather than a federated or network approach. I think we can do a lot better in modeling the process of organizations such as the iRISC team and the product that the iRISC team is attempting to build. Moving on to slide 56, <clears throat> this highlights some of the distinctions I've been alluding to between, for example, ontology and engineering and the new concept of ontology management. Still evolving, hopefully uh, will become much more crystallized with uh, within the next year or so. But take a look at the audience and uh, the people, individuals you know in your organization who consider themselves ontology engineers versus uh, typical business, uh, business analysts, systems analysts that also may work not necessarily at the level of ontology engineering. The layer uh, one belief is that a ontology team combining specialists in each of these two domains would make uh, tremendous progress in the various projects that we're working on. Education, uh, the philosophy ICS versus business school civil engineering, a big difference in the kinds of tools available at the bottom. Semantic technology is pretty well developed, and we see project management ontologies emerging. And on the ontology management column, looking at uh, increasing semantic technologies, which uh, make life much more easy for uh, rapid discussion and exposure of turf overlaps to be identified prior to making any unnecessary commitments. Revolving. Did we move to slide 56 already? Yes. On slide 57, 
I expand the idea of roadmaps, baselines, and benchmarks, looking at the relationships between tasks and tools. Um, in particular, my last point, the use of the ontology-driven policies and the uh, decision-supporting ontologies we're trying to develop, we are in the process of developing, are aimed at hiding, uh, not exposing, hidden assumptions, allowing reality checking of processes, smart sensor integration, expressed in open and proprietary models, and developed on legacy frameworks as a service component. The artifacts and evidence on convergence in healthcare and in the building sectors, I think our roles that we see evolving and working through the OOR design and governance over the next two, three months, um, very positive, tremendous amount of energy going into the process, the preparation for the results. Some other items well beyond the OOR design and governance efforts is in architecture, engineering, construction, AEC. We see uh, the identification of the cost of failing to make interoperable building technologies. NIST uh, and Fallon released uh, recently uh, October, November of last year, extended work for the building industry, identifying what the costs are, well over $14 billion, and not having sufficient interoperability in the life cycle between the investor decision and the turnover of the final drawings and data models to uh, the operator on through demolition. So I can uh, basically skip to um, the last slide. Resolved that ontology is needed, not only in general, but very specifically in emergency uh, response management. We've uh, seen this slide before, but we still need computability of less expressive but more constrained representations for both the ontology engineering community, the ontology management community, and both communities. We are on slide 62. Theory of academic and practice has certainly been illustrated and sufficient evidence uh, marshaled from the discussions, particularly with Rex and Rochelle, for the heavy involvement of practitioners at the end and throughout the process. Finally, obviously, there are important opportunities which I'd like to encourage further discussion. Um, and this is 
take two, looking forward to take three, and the experience intervening of, on the one hand, building the decision-supporting ontology model with the I-risk and grounded in some of the issues and problems we're having digesting the BIMS, NBIMS, NIMS capability at the local city and multi-county region. Uh, so with that, I'd like to thank you for your attention and turn everything back to Lex and Peter. Thank you, Bob. Um, and we're open for questions. And Peter so, needs to uh, same drill again. If you want to line up uh, for questions, please press a 1-1. One, one. And uh, in the meantime, we already uh, had a few questions earlier uh, that is on the chat session. Maybe we can go through some of those uh, for now. Uh, let me bring up the chat session. For those who are on the share screen or in the chat session, you would probably be able to see that now. Um, most of the questions have been raised by uh, by Rafi. Maybe we can go down. Uh, go through those one at a time. Uh, okay, this first one uh, for David Weber. Uh, how accurate are the ontology discovery or concept and context matching standards or tools? Uh, David, are you there? Yes, yes, I am. Yeah. Uh, in fact, um, uh, is, uh, hang, hang on, David. Uh, Ravi, if you unmute yourself uh, vocally with David. But one thing I have to notify everyone, we probably only have another maybe less than 10 minutes uh, to sort of uh, try to be quick. And to the point. Okay, go, go, go ahead. Um, okay, so... Just on the uh, the general concepts of, of linking uh, better uh, ontology uh, tools um, in, into the base uh, exchanges, uh, we've been looking at this for uh, several years now on the the uh, CAM work. And actually, in version one, uh, we moved that uh, whole section on the registry linkage into the non-normative part of the specification. Uh, several reasons for that, but mostly um, because we're still uh, working and, uh, on this and seeing that the maturity is, is not quite uh, there yet. Um, but we're hopeful that this year um, EBXML registry version 4 is uh, currently a work in progress. And we're eagerly awaiting uh, getting that uh, new release um, once that's available. Uh, and we're looking at that as being uh, uh, finally giving us uh, a simple uh, machine-based interfacing between um, 
the 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 cam uh, template and the cam uh, engine and the uh, uh, semantics in the registry, and so that will open up uh, significant new uh, capabilities. But right now, um, we're, we're we're basically planning to uh, no, we're planning we're, we're working on getting people to the first base, as it were in terms of using templates and understanding the advantages that that can give them um, and, and, and just getting them to, to uh, subsume and understand that and, and get the first uh, uh, step. Okay, thank you, David. Uh, okay, uh, is Elisa there? Lisa, are you back? Yeah, because Ravi also asked if the meeting you mentioned on next Wednesday, whether that is an open meeting. I don't believe Lisa is back, so you might want to ping her uh, by email, uh, Ravi. So, uh, Peter? Yes. Uh, yes. yes. Go for ahead, Rex, Ravi. A quick one. quick one for Rex is for the uh, common access uh, alerting protocol, CAPs. Yeah. Are they classified into types? Uh, and I'm thinking of the picture painted by Michelle for tornado and ensuing damage progression. So that for geographically aware systems, you would have a reverse 911 type of uh, broadcast. Oh, actually, actually or, Cap, I, I think know, that I think the cap was used for reverse 911. Uh, purposes in the November uh, fires in Southern California. Ah, it was. Yes, but was this, oh, the protocol itself was used. Very good. So you are very close to implementation when you develop these standards. Uh, we try to be. Yeah, no, so that tells us something about the adoption rate of these uh, researches that are going on and the standards that are coming. And the uh, same way, are they building? Well, that's good. That answers essentially my question. Please, Peter, go ahead. And some of these questions on EBXML, uh, SOA, and the other registry and repository updates, just kindly give a one-sentence summary of how far beyond have you come from the old BPSS, although Danny has tried to answer some of them. I think David may be better able to answer that one. All right. Um, yeah, I, I, I missed the last part of the question there. Uh, it broke up on me on the phone. I think he was asking about how far has EBXML registry repository come from the previous version. Of BPSS. Oh, okay. Great. Yes. All right. Yeah. Um, basically... Uh, the, the two key features that I'm uh, seeing in version 4 that I'm keen to get is, uh, number one is a REST interface, a full REST interface with uh, create, read, update, delete, uh, which can integrate into um, AJAX uh, rich Internet uh, experience application uh, development. So we can rapidly build the kind of user interfaces that we need to support the functionality that, that people expect. So that's number one. Um, number two, they're extending the uh, uh, the rim to make it more flexible 
and to make it easier to uh, store uh, different kinds of XML uh, content in in the uh, registry and, and to make uh, uh, relationships and queries and uh, so on uh, between the content. So it's the two sides. It's the automated interfacing is going to be improved and the ability to, to store and retrieve content. I noticed uh, I noticed where you were also having a conversation today about valueless types, and I thought that was uh, excellent that you're actually uh, beginning to approach that. I was hoping that we might have been able to spend a little more time on XMDR today, but I think that uh, you know that's something that I would like to suggest that EBXML look at aligning itself with. Okay, uh, since we are running. Out of time quickly. Uh, I should quickly. Uh, I should move to the next uh, person. Uh, we actually have two more people lined up. One uh, first one is person from nine one five area code, and after that, I uh, I actually have a question for Michelle. Uh, so the person from nine one five area code, uh, if you would speak up, uh, I have already unmuted your line actually. Uh, yes, this is Ross Tom and. Um, a question for David and Michelle, as well as Rex and Bob. Uh, David, in your slide 20, uh, you began to describe uh, three business models. Uh, could you um, elaborate further on that, <clears throat> as well as exactly who is the targeted customer base, um, and how would you begin to uh, quantify and measure an ROI for this uh, targeted customer base. Yes, it's um, a difficult one to, um, as you as you're kind of noting here, to really kind of pin down precisely. Uh, what I did in developing the example uh, was just kind of go with my own healthcare kind of experience and say. If I was a typical hospital administration department and I uh, faced this quest uh, for this information, um, what, what would I need? Uh, and, and basically trying to provide that uh, template and that uh, initial jumpstart kit, as it were. Uh, now, the deployment models are really going to depend on the sophistication of the particular uh, institution. Now, I, obviously, you can go there's the gamut from uh, a small rural town where they really don't have uh, anything more beyond uh, dial-up Internet experience um, through to a city hospital facility where they're, you know, doing EDI and, and, and these, these things are much more f uh, familiar with them for them. So um, really what I was envisioning is just showing people examples of how these things can be approached uh, in, in different ways to make it easy uh, to get the adoption moving. And, uh, you know, it, it, that's, that's really the kind of the focus here. It's not picking one or the other or saying, you know, this is a better way of doing it. It's just... Um, uh, here's, here's a selection of mechanisms, and, and you're going to have to uh, facilitate that as, as best makes sense for your own environment. Uh, I'd like to add I mean, one more thing. Simply, yeah. 
Uh, I, it's also aimed at not only hospital administration, but the uh, county and regional uh, EOC offices, the uh, emergency operations centers. So the first responders, is that correct, Rex? Yes. Well, it's more the, the managers uh, and the responders. Yeah, one, one further thought on this is that we know that CDC Finn has their EBXML-based mechanism, which is uh, countrywide, and uh, they have hundreds of participants in that. So if I was to look for a real low-hanging fruit, um, that would be where I would go first because they already have the infrastructure in place, and now you're just merely adding uh, another possible payload uh, to, to come across that. David, I'm sorry, I missed the first uh, part of your comment. What was the entity? Um, uh, uh, CDC Finn uh, have a EBXML messaging-based uh, system that they have already in place that, that's used for uh, emergency purposes. Um, and so, it, you know, that, that would be a, 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 my first port of call in terms of they already have, uh, you know, lots of people doing that, and if those people could be persuaded to to participate in in providing additional information, that that will be an easy uh, easy extra for uh, for them to do. As far as return on investment uh, with emergency management and building facilities, two comments. One is that emergency responders, as I said in the talk, aren't the ones who usually have the budget. So you need to sell the value proposition to the facility owner, manager, uh, who or, or who who is concerned with what the contents of that building are. And they're the ones that need to realize that if they have resources that allow emergency responders to get there faster, do their job better, uh, that they will not only save lives, which I hate to say it that way, but that's sometimes the way it comes out, uh, they will be able to have their facility back running faster. There will be less loss of resources. Uh, we, we did a study and showed uh, that with one particular representation of information, we could reduce the decision support time from a three-minute to under 30 seconds for most cases. 15 seconds was the average where they started actually sending firefighters in just by changing the presentation of the information. If you want to go into the larger information space of the NBIMS, I would suggest uh, going to the slide set, BIM underscore slide underscore show PowerPoint that I have uh, listed. Uh, there are actually effort versus cost influence curves uh, out there and what the collection of information, what the cost savings estimates are. They've done a, a return on investment. Thank you. Bob, do you want to add to that too because uh – yeah, the business model is itself a business model. We're able to look at the cost benefits pro forma as identified first by Michelle. That as you get insurance companies uh, with huge amounts of risk potential, 
they're bound to use tools like Fair Isaacs uh, and other risk management tools to do the trade-offs in terms of response time, rebuilding, finding out where the hazards are, identifying through the sensing materials and the incredibly sophisticated sensing uh, capabilities that you would have with a shared uh, county-wide or region-wide command center. All the cost <laughs> of using level one versus level two versus level three, level four, like we have talked about before in prior slide, prior presentations of uh, Blackman, Blackford Middleton's uh, health information exchange um, modeling can certainly put be put to good use in driving home the economics. Was that David or Rex? That was Bob. 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 Okay. Bob. 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 Dr. Bob. The question is that, uh, Dr. Bob Smith, the, uh, the question is that can we not reuse a service when and where needed by having a virtualized presence of the capability that you just described as being costly and thereby distribute the cost? It's not at every place you get emergencies. And assuming the frequencies of national average level uh, or, or some expedient situation, we can model that distribution of cost through instance sharing. I thought I was responding to Ross Baumann's question, not Robbie's question. I, uh, I understand, but I just commented saying if cost is a consideration from infrastructure point of view, then there are virtualization and reuse distributed technologies that allow you to reduce it, for instance. Absolutely, absolutely. And all the knowledge that we've obtained from uh, reuse, what to do and what not to do to improve the optimal amount of reduce of appropriate objects, um, Particularly to facilitate the reuse. Exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you. Uh, one thank more you. question, with Peter's permission. Okay, you go ahead. Then, then. And uh, that uh, is a quick one. one uh, quick one relating same to the slide number twenty, which everybody referred to, was. Uh, are these templates, uh, for example, set up already and are being used uh, in, uh, uh, let's say, the CDC or uh, similar uh, situations like Red Cross, where uh, only new introduction is ontology integration and the CAM engine? That's probably for um, Yes, I um, certainly no. I we've we've put together um, the the base template as like an example that people could uh, adapt very quickly to their actual own local needs. So um, they could fill in, you know, to the XML what made sense uh, for 
for for their particular institution um, and then try it uh, with the template uh, and the report. Um, and, and certainly I've gone for a, a lowest common denominator type approach where keeping it simple enough that, that people can uh, readily recognize uh, and be able to uh, uh, kind of fill in the information from what they have uh, at hand. Um, but, but yes, I, I, I think that the, the overall, the, uh, the approach of starting with um, at leveraging infrastructure that's already in place uh, to, to get a, an initial implementation up uh, obviously has tremendous uh, appeal and advantages. Uh, so, uh, thank you, David. Uh, last question. I mean, we are really running over. I, I actually uh, want to take the opportunity to say that, I mean, it was amazing the amount of information that this panel has put together. Uh, it's a great presentation. But one slide that particular, in particular, uh, was intriguing. Uh, that's, uh, Michelle's slide number 47. And I noticed that, I mean, of course, I'm totally uh, ignorant in, in your domain, but it, uh, there is this uh, multi-language uh, conceptual uh, handle that, that that you showed on on slide 47, which is your sort of subset, slide number eight, which says one concept carries the same unique identifier in every language. So someone had actually put a handle on sort of concepts and identified them across languages. Uh, of course, the, the follow-on question is, how were the concepts modeled? I mean, uh, could you maybe uh, enlighten us a little bit on that? I mean, were the concepts built sort of based on a certain ontology, I mean, or on ontological engineers or knowledge engineers involved in, in the original building of it, or has this been passed down in some legacy systems and so on? Because, I mean, it's definitely intriguing. Uh, well, it really depends on the subsection of, because the we're talking about the whole national building information model system. So, each, yes, every one of the concepts has a unique identifier, and it's the concept that's identified, not the format in which it's presented, not the language in which it's um, held. The model, though, uh, is actually being developed by a bunch of different groups. So the, bo the model that is doing the financial parts of buying the lumber for building a structure, um, we went to users that were of that community and worked with ontology professionals. And then there are other sections where um, they looked at the process of actual construction and then they look at the install process, and then they're looking all the way up at the services that then can talk to the sensors in the building. So there are many, many, many sub-models within this whole information space. So the quality across the entire model is, is something that is a 
um, a discussion point that each one has to go through the process and get approved. So there's a whole process for each of the segments. If you uh, look at the the PowerPoint that I point to on further information on the BIMS, there's a whole page of two columns in like nine-point font of all of the areas in building management that they're trying to include in the model. There's just a tiny, tiny fraction of that work that's been done. Roughly so how, it's not how, quite how, a direct how, answer to your question. Yeah, roughly uh, how, how big is this sort of uh, conceptual uh, vocabulary? In hundreds of concepts, thousands of concepts, hundreds of thousands of concepts? It's, it's going to eventually be at hundreds of thousands of concepts uh, if you reach across not just the fact that we're saying these are objects in the system, but we also need activities that occur. We also want to describe events, processes. We want to be able to describe uh, the characteristics of individuals. So the the space is so very large, and then it is extensible so that it can include complementary spaces. For example, six years back or so, we were really, we wanted to say we were very into energy management, uh, but we really were huge in that area. Now, energy management is becoming, by social consciousness and, and, and social norms, something that's a driving force for standards. And those standards are coming to bear and thus modifying um, some of these these uh, models that are now pre-existing for energy management. So it's going to be something that's going to evolve over time as well. And that's another notion that has to be addressed is that as building information models grow, we need to be able to say which version of the model are we pointing at so we are still understand the context we're in. Thank you, Michelle. So I, I will not drag this on, but uh, I would sure hope that the conceptual models are hanging off some uh, open upper ontology uh, rather than maybe a super domain ontology that comes from... No, it, it's more from... Uh, it, it has a four-tier approach as well where there's a common vocabulary at the bottom, and then it gets very quickly into some domain-specific areas of construction or, or what, and then it goes up um, the next level where there's some aggregation and then finally to uh, services. And so the, the way it's structured, the information does have a fairly obvious home within the hierarchy, and it's been working thus far. There's also, uh, a, there are events that go on for people who are putting out products that are uh, NBIMS compliant to show interoperability. Um, Bob, what were those? They're, they're, the, the BIM Smart. BIM Storm. BIM Storm, thank you. BIM Storm. And these go on around the world. So 
they're doing actual um, tests and exercises to show interoperability. Right, but but my, my I, I I still sort of stand on on that statement and hope that they actually did hang them off some uh, open up ontology and not a super domain ontology. All right, I I should pass this back to Rex to wrap it up in one minute. Uh, <laughs> sorry for taking the time, Rex. Uh, hi everyone. Uh, I think as we've seen. Um, there's a, uh, a ripe field to um, harvest here in terms of opportunities for putting ontology to good use. And uh, um, we really do want to stimulate uh, the community to look at areas where they can make these contributions where they're needed, such as tying the NVIMs to one another, one or another, if not several, of the upper ontologies. And I want to thank all of our all of our panelists for putting together a splendid uh, set of slides. And thank the ontological uh, community for giving us the opportunity to show them.